ready to the last session of this series of Life 101. We started um, this series by talking about how life is a journey. Um, and um, at a few points we talked about how it so happens that our journeys um, seem to intersect. At least they do tonight. At least they do for, for a couple of hours tonight and maybe have um, over the course of uh, a few times uh, in the last in the last couple of months. And I guess the natural question when you're on a journey uh, is asking yourself, well, where does this journey go? Um, and where does it where, where, where does it go? Where does it amount to? And, and the natural answer to that question in the, in the, in the context of this series is heaven. Um, and you may be asking yourself, what is heaven? Or, or uh, what's heaven like? Um, oftentimes when people talk about heaven, they talk about heaven as uh, a state, a state of being. It's described in the book of Revelation as a place where there's no pain, no suffering, no illness. And most importantly, no death. Uh, and and uh, but in the faith of the church, heaven is more than um, just a state. It is a state for sure, but it's also a place. It's a place where the souls rejoin with their bodies, and their and the body is transformed. And the body that was subject to all of those things, pain and suffering and, and illness and death. Um, in this life, it is no longer subject to those things in that life. In a certain sense, um, if we want to understand eternity, I mean, eternity is probably beyond our understanding, but nonetheless, if we want to get some kind of grasp of it, there are lots of things that are very uh, primordial, very much a part of our humanity, that are easy for us to grasp, uh, that that lead us to a thought about eternity. For example, we all are eating dinner tonight, and I really hope you came hungry, and I really hope you leave full. Um, it's almost like we're in this perpetual state of hunger, and if we eat, we're satisfied for a certain period of time. And then after that, we regress back to our hunger. And as we remain in this perpetual state of hunger, we can only be temporarily satisfied. Um, in heaven, we're transformed, and that reality is, is, is flipped on its head, where we are constantly satisfied with no, with no need, with no hunger. I remember as a child, um, oftentimes imagining, playing imaginary games of being transformed into something. Now I have you know, young daughters, and frequently uh, they will transform me into a horse or a doggy or something. That, that's or, 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 a, or a bunny, and it's my job to, to hop around the house with them on my back, right? And we can play these imaginary games. If you were to be transformed, if something in you were to magically change, if you were to have no need, what would that thing be? Think about that as we, as we progress on and we talk. A lot of people say, well, Father John, that sounds all so very nice and rosy, but I think that religion is trouble. I think that all kinds of bad things have come from religion. Religion causes people to fight. Uh, history is full of wars uh, that were waged by Christians and others. Right? And I'm not here to tell you that that's not true. And some people um, would uh, approach that topic by saying, well, this denomination of Christianity did this and that. I'm, I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to do that either. I'm here to offer an, an apology for sure 
for all of the all of the history of the church, but also to mention that the church has been involved in, in all kinds of useful and good things throughout time. In fact, to quote the president of the World Bank, Jay Fulkinson, he made the point that the Christian church and all in all its branches is the largest non-governmental organization devoted to humanitarian purposes. It has vastly more power and resources than Oxfam or Tradecraft or Greenpeace or Médecins Sans Frontières or any other body you care to mention. He also quotes the World Health Organization saying that the Christian Church is the world's largest provider of healthcare reaching into almost every village on earth. And so, and so th this, is a, this is kind of demonstrates a little bit of what the role of the church is on earth. The role of the church on earth is to be in places and to transform them. And this transformation that we're talking about leads to change. And you may ask, well, well how does it lead to change? It leads, it leads to life change when people have the opportunity to encounter that transformed being. When people met Jesus, it was enough for them to meet him, they would change. And we're going to share a few examples of people like that um, a, a, a little bit later. And as they change, they become like him. It's enough to be loved and to be accepted for who you are before you change to cause that change. And that change makes these people a picture of heaven, makes these people an icon of heaven. And when you collect these people and put them all in one place, that's what heaven is like. And that isn't something which is passive or, um, or inward-looking only, but is something which is also outward-looking, is looking to change the whole world around it, to invade the whole world around it. And this isn't an invasion like a military invasion or, or a tour de force, uh, but is very, a very gentle invasion. And if we want a, 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 you know, the prototype of the invasion, the gentle invasion of heaven into earth, it would probably be this icon. And we've talked a lot about Orthodox icons, what they are. They're sort of pictural representations, very simplistic ones, of, of, spir of, of spiritual realities. And so this is an icon of, of the birth of Jesus, oftentimes referred to as Christmas or the Nativity, right? And you see, G you see Jesus and, and his mother Mary and Joseph and the wise men that came to visit, the shepherds and the angels and, and, and such. And if we ask ourselves, how, how did heaven in, invade earth? It was a very gentle invasion. It was a very humble invasion. The king of kings and the lord of lords, the creator of the universe at large, is born in a manger. Is born in a stinky, stanky manger feeding trough. The fe a feeding trough of animals. A show of hands here, how many people here have remember being to a farm recently or any time, right? Now, if you've ever been to a farm, let me ask you, what did it smell like, right? It smells of manure. That's what, that's what the creator of the universe is born into. And he lives a poor life. He's a, a tradesman, the son of, <coughs> of, of an orphan girl, his father, he's, he's, and he himself is orphaned or is rendered fatherless at a young age, at the age of 12, long before he's able to 
have gainful means of employment. He and his mother must have been very poor. And he continues on in this life of humility and manages to change the world. And there's also this icon um, uh, of, of the death of Jesus. And the title of the icon is written at the top, Extreme Humility. And, but above it, which you probably can hardly see, it says the King of Glory. And here, here is what the church believes to be the king of the universe, right? He, he suffers in extreme, in extreme humility. This is how heaven touches people and changes them, through extreme humility. And Jesus lives this life of extreme humility and is persecuted and suffers and dies. But he doesn't remain dead. He rises from the dead. And as he rises from the dead, he declares, not with uh, you know, a proclamation, not with uh, a press release, uh, he declares just in the very essence of who he is, alive to witnesses who see him, who experience his resurrection, who see him, who touch him, who can't believe their eyes, and so they, they, they give him food to eat, and they see he can eat food, and he, they can, he can touch him, right? And they see that he is alive. And the proclamation here continues in, in gentleness and meekness that death has died by death. By the death of, the, of he who is life. When he who is life died, when life entered into death, death became life. When, dark, when light enters into a dark room, that dark room becomes light. And so, Jesus declares very gently and very quietly. And, and people witness this, and they see that he who is dead is now alive. And no one did this to him. He did it to himself. And that becomes, that on its own is enough to become the one thing which gives people all the, the evidence they need to be willing to die for this truth and this reality. That death has died by death and has been conquered in the person of Jesus Christ. And they go on and they tell people this. And they live their lives with no regard for death because death has died. And they go on and they share this with other people. And naturally, they're saying something which sounds completely crazy. You know, Benjamin Franklin says there's only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Right? And all of a sudden, these people are declaring that the one thing, or one of two things, if you, if you so wish, which is most certainly going to happen to everybody, which is death, is, is not the end. Naturally, they're persecuted. Naturally, naturally they're, they're, they're fought against. Right? And we see that this persecution continues on even very much to this very day. This is, uh, you may or may not have seen this video of the 21 martyrs of Libya from a few years back um, who were uh, essentially had their throats slit um, in, in, Lib in Libya simply because of their faith. With this declaration, the people of the cross, the followers of the hostile Egyptian church. It's pretty interesting who's who's demonstrating hostility here, but that's kind of besides the point. The point is, is, that, is that this life of the church, of proclaiming that death has died by death, and that there is life forevermore in the person of Jesus Christ and in union with him, 
is considered a hostile message and is persecuted even to this very day, even into the 21st century. And so these people who carry this witness with them and share it become like aliens, like exiles, people who are, have been exiled from their homeland. And they plainly declare that their homeland is heaven and that death no longer leads off a cliff, you know, that game lemmings, where the lemmings kind of walk, 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 and then just fall off a cliff. That's not the story anymore. The story isn't a story of walking and, and death and you fall off a cliff. The story is now of an upwards regeneration towards heaven. And they plainly declare that they are travelers. They're just in transit here. They're, this is not their final destination. And so what happens here? you know, is of great importance, but also it is of not much consequence. And that de declaration comes at a cost. And Jesus gives his followers tools and weapons to deal with the cost of following him. He gives them meekness, gentleness, mercy, forgiveness, and love. These are the, these are the tools, these are the weapons of the walk following following Jesus. And you'll find on page 76 of your manuals, if you, if you have them, you'll find this, this chart kind of um, comparing the two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And you'll find one kingdom is noted by self-interest, the other kingdom by love for God and love of neighbor. One kingdom is characterized by competition, the other by cooperation. In one kingdom, power is given to a select few, and the rest are forced to follow. In the kingdom of God, power is a gift given to all. One of the most astounding things that astounded the Roman Empire about Christianity and made it made the Roman Romans just think of Christianity as just foolish, like madness was that everyone had the same status in the church. Yes, there is a hierarchy, yes, there are priests and bishops and so on, but no one is more important than another. And what really boggled their mind was that slaves and widows and orphans, who were considered like, like they're kind of like what untouchables are to, to you know, ancient uh, Indian culture, uh, uh, slaves, orphans, and widows were to Roman culture. Right? They're useless. That they are, have no gainful means of employment. They don't pay taxes. They're absolutely useless. They're the, they're the offscouring of society. They're 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 nothing but a like a parasite to society. Right? That was really the mentality of, of, of the time. That the, the church welcomed these people and honored these people. That Jesus would say, "When I was hungry, when you fed me, when I was thirsty, you gave me to drink." And people say, "When, Lord?" And He says, "When you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me." That was a very novel concept and very counterculture concept in, in in Roman times. That the poor were actually elevated above the rich, and everyone was given a gift, and everyone was given power from God. Obedience in the kingdom of the world is through the law, through threats, whereas in the kingdom of God, it's 
by agreement that is honored by love, and so on. You'll find that you'll find a you know a, sum, a summary of this table on page 76 in your manuals if you um, if you so wish. And one might say, well, gee, this kingdom of heaven sounds too good to be true. I mean, it sounds utopic. It sounds like a dream. Well, if that's a dream, and if it really exists, then anything else must be anything else must be a nightmare. Speaking of, speaking of dreams, I'll tell a story. Once a man had a dream um, that his soul left his body and his, was joined by an angel who took him to a place. He took him to a place where there was this massive banquet happening. And um, there was an empty chair, and the angel brought him up to the empty chair. And he asked the angel, he said, well, where is this? Is this heaven? Uh, and the angel didn't say anything, and he just bid him to sit down. So he sat down. And everybody seemed quite happy to be there. And there was your most favorite foods that you could imagine strewn out over, you know, a table that reached the horizon. And people were joyful and they were so happy to be there. And a bell rang. And as the moment the bell rang, you know, a bellowing voice says, dinner is served. And everybody picked up their fork or their knife or their spoon or whatever to serve themselves some food. And they served themselves some food and they put it in their plate. And as they pick up their fork to put it in the food, the fork gets longer and longer and longer and longer. And now the person's trying to put the fork in their plate, but they can't because the thing has gotten too long. And at that moment, all these people realize how hungry they are. And they're so hungry, they want to eat the food. They can't because their utensils, magical utensils, are torturing them by getting longer and longer. So some people try to drop the utensils, forget it, I'll just eat with my hands. And the utensils are stuck to their hands and they're tormented by the fact that the food is there in front of them and they just can't reach it. The man is, is terrorized by this. And he turns and he looks at the angel, the look of terror in his eyes. And the angel said, had enough? And he says, yes. He says, come, let me take you to another place. And so he feels his soul is just whisked up from the chair and, and rises to, you know, or descends or goes somewhere to another place. And as he goes to another place, the, 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 in that place, the, the door opens, and before him, he sees the same exact table and the same empty chair. And the angel is leading him to that chair, and he says, no, 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 no. I've seen this before. I'm not watching this rerun. We've been there. I'm not an angel hasn't sit in the chair, and he sits in the chair, and the bell rings, and dinner is served, and everybody picks up their utensils, and, and he's horrified, and he wants to tell people, don't, don't pick up, don't pick up your utensils, don't do it, and, and everybody, and the same thing happens, and the utensils grow longer and longer and longer and longer, and the people are looking at the food, and they're hungry, and they don't know what to do. Same exact story, and then all of a sudden something changes. Here's someone across the table call his name. And the person calls his name, and he looks up, and there's that person with that way too long fork with food on it, offering to feed him. And he looks down the banquet table as far as the eye can see, and everybody's feeding the person in front of them. And he says, this is heaven. Heaven is a place where people put the interests of others above their own. Well, Father John, I mean, how do you know that any of this is true? I mean, how do you know that any of this exists? How do you know that this isn't all just a figment of your imagination or something that people talk about or wishful thinking, something that people who want to comfort themselves from the sufferings of this life wish for? How do you know it's real? How do you know 
It's true. Well, in, in, in the Bible, there's this part that says, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, run the race with endurance that you may obtain the prize. And what it's talking about, this cloud of witnesses, is people who have, who have seen, people who have run the race, have gone before us and are bidding us to come. And in the church, we call those people saints. We call, those, we call all the people in the church saints, but those who have been victorious and have gone on to the kingdom of heaven and come back to tell us about it, we call those people saints. And probably the most eminent of those, the most talked about and the, the most, is St. Mary. And the reason for that is probably very simply because never once is it recorded or is it known that God approached her and that she said no. He says to her, little orphan girl, May you be the mother of my son, with no father. In her time that was punishable by death, she says, let it be to me according to your word. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so, it's not so much the person of St. Mary that we adore, uh, or, or, but it's, it's her actions, it's her life. We look to what she is and what she has done and we say, gee, I would like to be the same. I would like to do the same. The patron saint of our church here is St. Moses the Strong. He was a, a person of not of noble birth. He was born a, a peasant, soon thereafter became a slave, and he was a horrible servant. He was a horrible slave in his master's household somewhere in Upper Egypt. It's probably from Ethiopia or Nubia. Uh, or, 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 or those regions just sort of south of, of the southern or southern part of Egypt. And he must have killed somebody or stolen something. Eventually his master got so fed up of him, he just threw him out. And he went out into the wilderness and became a band of raiders, raped, pillaged, robbed uh, villages and so on. He was a horrible man, a really a horrible, a horrible, horrible person. Um, and at one point he looks up to the sky and he says, Oh son, if you are God, let, tell me, let me know. And he hears a voice from heaven saying to him, go to the north coast of Egypt, and there you'll find some monks, and they will tell you who I am. So he travels there, and he meets some monks, and they lead him to an elder monk, Abba Isidore. And he sees, he sees St. Isidore, and he tells him, I want to know the true God. Can you tell me? And he says, I will tell you. And he falls in love with the life of these monks. And he says, he says to Abba Isidore, I want to live with you. I never want to leave you. And Abba Isidore says, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you can handle it. He asks, he, he asks Moses, Moses, what do you eat in a day? And he says, I eat a lamb, like a whole lamb. And <laughs> Abba Isidore says, we don't eat meat at all. He says, what do you drink? He says, we drink, I drink a barrel of wine a day. A barrel of wine a day. You'll find the relics of St. Moses upstairs in the church. You're welcome to go visit him. And you'll find them placed upon a barrel. <laughs> The reason for that is, is, is this part of the story. And, uh, and um, Abba says, we don't drink any wine at all. How are you going to live with us? And he says, I will. And he offers a fierce struggle, spiritual struggle, to learn how to live a life of austere asceticism. And, and he, becomes, he becomes a great saint. He's often pictured like this, carrying a bag of sand as an elder. When he became a very old monk and was a holy man, he was ordained, he became a monk, he was ordained a priest, and so on. One of the other monks was found um, 
was was caught in the act of adultery. Was, and 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 monks are you know taking a vow of celibacy. So the elder monks were gathering to 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 you know to pass judgment on him and decide what she should should be done with him in this community of monks. And they kept calling Abba Moses, and Abba Moses wouldn't go. And they'd send some messenger to go, Abba Moses, we've all gathered, please come. And he wouldn't come. Abba Moses, he wouldn't come. Finally, finally, he came. He came carrying this big bag of sand that had a little hole in it. And the sand was trailing behind, behind him. And many of the other monks ran to him and said, Abba Moses, let me carry that for you. He says, no, 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 I have to carry it myself. It's mine. And finally, he got to the council. And the, the, the other elders said to him, Abba Moses, what are you carrying? What's that you're carrying on your back? And he says, he, he says, here I am bearing the burden of all of my own sins, and they trail behind me for all to see, yet I come to judge another. He had mastered, he had mastered the virtue of non-judgmentalness. He had mastered the virtue of upholding every person, no matter how weak or feeble in their spiritual walk and honoring them. And the other elders, ashamed, turned, and each one went his own way. There's this very similar story of Jesus doing something very similar. The other patron saint of our church is St. Catherine. St. Catherine is sort of like the opposite of St. Moses in every way. One was male, she's female. He was of not of noble birth. She was of exceedingly noble birth. She was lived in, at the end of the third and beginning of the fourth century. She was the most beautiful woman in Alexandria. And uh, she was of noble birth. Her father was a, a governor for the Roman Empire in, in, uh, in Cy from Cyprus in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, and she was extremely learned. She's often pictured with, with some books beside her because of her, because of her knowledge. And um, she was about 18. And her mom started to get kind of worried about her, uh, and worried that she wasn't yet unmarried. And suitors would come to her, and none of them were good enough for her. Either they weren't intelligent uh, enough as she was, or they weren't as wealthy as she was, or she they weren't as noble as she was. And so she rejected them. And in her mother's anxiety, as 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 mothers are in worry, she took Catherine to to an elder, and uh, and. The elder, they, they were her, her family, they were pagan, but her mom might have been Christian, we don't know. And she takes her to, the, and this elder tells her that you already have a groom, and he is coming for you, um, and he will make you his bride. And the, the mother is reassured, Catherine is intrigued, and she says, who, who is this uh, groom who's coming to me? And he gives Catherine an, an icon of St. Mary holding the Christ child. And she takes the icon home joyfully, and she sets it up at home. And then she has a dream that night, and she sees um, St. Mary and, and the Christ child, and she sees Jesus turn his face away from her. And so she asks St. Mary, why is he turning his face away from me? And St. Mary answers her, and he tell, tells her, because you are uncomely to behold, because you're unfitting to look at. No one had ever said anything like that to her. She's the most beautiful woman in Alexandria. And so... She wakes up and she runs back to the elder the next day and she asks him, what does that mean? And he tells her, because you're still in your sins. You haven't been baptized. You haven't accepted, you haven't accepted Christ and you're not living, you're not living a, life of, a life of holiness. And he starts to explain to her and teach her and she falls in love. She falls in love with, with this Jesus. And so she goes home joyfully. 
days later, she has another dream where she's told to go be baptized. So she goes and she's baptized, and that night she has a dream where Jesus appears to her and he puts a ring on her finger and he tells her, you are my bride. And so St. Catherine is often referred to as St. Catherine the Bride of Christ. And oftentimes she's pictured with a ring on her finger because when she woke up in the morning, the ring was there. Soon thereafter, Maxentius, the emperor, was visiting Alexandria and he put on a huge festival. And at that festival, he saw Catherine and he said, who is that beautiful woman? I want her as my wife. They told him she's Catherine and this and that, and they brought her to him. And she told him, you know, no can do. I'm already married, and I'm married to Jesus Christ. And he just said, that's ridiculous. I mean, he died, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. This is nonsense. You know, somebody talks some sense into this woman. So he organizes a big debate between a bunch of philosophers and Catherine. And so the, the debate goes on. And, uh, and Catherine is brought to debate against these philosophers, 150 philosophers. And so she's brought to, to debate with them, and one of them says to the others, he says, look, let me just lead the charge here. She's just a, a girl. She doesn't really know anything. This will be quick and easy, and we can all kind of celebrate. Uh, and so he goes to debate with her, and she convinces him into the faith in Jesus Christ. And he declares, I'm a Christian, and I believe in the God of Catherine. And then all the other philosophers declare the same. The emperor goes crazy and he says, he kills them all and he throws Catherine in prison. He throws Catherine in prison, then what happens? The, the wife of the emperor, Faustina, and 200 soldiers go to visit her because they're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure her out. You know, what's, what's with this? What's with this girl? And they visit her in prison and she convinces them into the faith in Christ. And they also declare their faith, and the emperor kills them as well, including his, his, the empress Faustina. The emperor's gone berserk now. At this point, he doesn't, he doesn't want Catherine, he just wants her to die. So he, he puts her through a variety of different tortures to get her to renounce the faith, and she doesn't. And finally, she's also often pictured with the wheel, or sometimes she's called Catherine with the wheel. And he puts her on this giant wheel. This was a common method of, 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 of torture and persecution of Christians which was kind of sport at the time. Everyone would gather in the arena, people are sitting in the stands, and they would cheer on the death, of, the death of, of these people. And so he puts her on this wheel, which is this massive wheel suspended about six inches off the ground, and they would you know, crank it up as the person is, like, is strapped to the wheel. And then, of course, as, as they would come to the bottom, they would get crushed because they'd have to, you know, the, the wheel is hanging so close to the ground. And all of Alexandria comes out to see this and they mourn because they loved Catherine. And they say, this is, this is ridiculous, this is madness, you've gone mad, stop, and all of this. And as he puts her on the wheel and they start cranking it around, the wheel snaps in two. And three and a half thousand people run down the stairs of the arena into, into the base of the stadium declaring, we believe in the God of Catherine. And they all get martyred and eventually she's beheaded. And she continues to be alive amongst us and to do miracles. Now, you may say, okay, but how do you know, again, Father John, how do you know that any of this is true? I'll give you one, one last uh, example without telling uh, you know, so many stories. Our, our patriarch from two years ago, from two patriarchs ago, so our current patriarch, his name is Abba Tawadros. The one before him was Pope Shenouda. The one before him was Pope Cyril VI, who has recently been canonized as saint. Pope Cyril VI was a wonder worker during his life and afterwards. And if you ask anybody at your table if they can tell you a miracle or a story of, that's attributed to Pope Cyril VI, 
they'll be able to tell you. In almost every family in the Coptic Church, there's some, there's some miracle attributed to him and to his prayers. He is very much alive amongst us. He, he was patriarch from 1959 to 1971. He died in 1971. And I feel almost uh, aghast to say the word he died because, in fact, he seems to be more alive than you and me and all of us put together, continuing to be alive and continuing to do all kinds of wonders um, for, with people. So we began by saying that, our journey, our, that, that we're on a journey together, and we'll wrap up now by talking about being on a journey together. And speaking of spiritual struggle, a modern Japanese writer writes in these terms, in terms of a sailor on a sailing boat waiting for a good breeze. He says, it's important that the sailor keep alert and be awake and unfurl the sails when the wind blows so that he can set sail. He can't expect to move if he's asleep and his sails are not ready. The breeze that we're looking for and that we're waiting for to unfurl our sails to is the touch of the Holy Spirit, is the touch of the living God who changes the universe ever so gently and will unfurl our sails and will sail and will sail home to heaven together. Enjoy your discussion.